The following conversation originally aired on The Point on KPOV 889-FM High Desert Community Radio in Bend, Oregon. Airing weekdays at 9 a.m., The Point is a half-hour locally produced show focusing on people and events in Central Oregon. Our guest this morning is Anne Graham. Anne is a Redmond resident and the author of the recently published book, Tall Annie, A Life in Two Genders. Welcome to the Wednesday Point, Anne, and thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Anne, it is so hard to believe it, but it was April of 2018 when you told your story to us here on The Point. Let's get a Reader's Digest version of your story for the new members of our listener family. In the book, you say you were born in the wrong gender. At what point in your life did you become aware of this? I was probably four or five when it would very apparent to me that my sister was getting to do things that I was not getting to do. And I saw that and I call it gender training. Simple things like she got polka dot panties and I had to wear those stupid white things with the fold and the flap on the front. And uh, she could hurt herself and cry and get uh, comforted by our parents. And if I hurt myself, I got told boys don't cry, be tough. And I saw that as gender training, and I ultimately repressed my sense that I should have been a girl, but it it never went away. But I took on the gender trainings of a boy. You went on and lived your life as a man with a distinguished service record. You did two tours in Vietnam on a submarine. You married and had two sons and a very successful career. And yet, at age 46, you made what must have been a really difficult decision to transition surgically and spiritually into a woman. Was there one thing that led to this decision? It was complex. Uh, There's a term, gender dysphoria. It describes the time in your life when the gender pressure to change becomes disruptive of your life and that happened to me it was something it was an obsession by the time I was 46 and I was doing things that were potentially harmful to my own body and I was uh, not being perhaps the best husband And the biggest trigger that I recall was the invention of the Internet. I discovered the Internet, and I found for the first time in my life that there was a medically respected protocol you could go through that would help you deal with those kind of issues in your life. And I immediately started that protocol, and it helped me enormously. It was very difficult for my family, and I write about all of this, but... Uh, that started me down the path of finding living the dream that had been inside me for 46 years. Before you took that final step, you had to go through a lot of work. Talk to us about your years of counseling and the real-life test. Oh, yeah. Um, Initially, you spend many months in therapy, weekly therapy with a psychiatrist trained in what was called the Harry Benjamin Protocol. And it assesses whether your gender desires are real or if they're some kind of what's called a sexual paraphilia. And somewhere in there, you start taking hormones, which 
suppress the male hormones and begin the secondary sexual transition. So I, I budded breasts, my skin got soft, all these kind of things, which was incredibly pleasant for me. And then one year uh, into that therapy, you are challenged by the therapist to throw away, in my case, all the guy clothes and begin demonstrating that you can be successful in the other gender. And for me, I was working in a very high-powered job with Intel Corporation. And I told my boss that this time had come. He had never heard the term transsexual, but Intel HR had. They gave me some time off to make a few changes. And I came back to work as a professional woman. And I spent a year working at Intel doing my job and not failing to continue to perform. And Intel supported me fully for the next 10 or 11 years that I worked there. And after one year of demonstrating that, the therapist wrote a letter that I could take to a surgeon and have the final sex change surgery. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, Dan. No uh, how were you received when you returned, when you left Intel as a man and returned as a woman? How, how did your coworkers receive you? Well, Intel HR had trained all of them to be very careful. So mostly all of the responses I got were very polite and not a single person at Intel ever gave me any trouble or the outside contracting firms I worked with regularly. But what I did notice was I started to be treated as a second-class citizen. I started to live the thing that all women live. Uh, men would patronize me. Men would assume I didn't know something. And, of course, I was in a position where I led projects. And I write about one particular incident where a man actually asked me to go get him coffee. Uh, the classic thing. And I... And did you do that? Uh, pointed, I pointed to the coffee pot, and then I went to the front of the room and banged the gavel and brought this room to attention and started our project. And he was quite red-faced uh, <laughs> after that. But I, I discovered all along men definitely have presume that women don't know what they're talking about. And with me, that was a mistake. You know, you must have read my script, because my next question was, is, there are those that just cannot understand why you would choose to give up the advantages, quote-unquote, of being born in a male body, particularly in the workplace. Help us understand yes. that. I mean, yes. you chose to give that up. Yes, and, and of course I had spent a big part of my life working as a male engineer, in quotes, but fantasizing that I was a female while I was doing it. So making the change was a natural progression for me. I did not see a downside to being a woman engineer. I knew I was competent. I knew I would continue to perform at a high level for this very demanding corporation, Intel, and I did that. But many, many women, of course, have approached me and questioned why I would give up the status of a, a very powerful male. And, of course, I tell them that I think women are... Uh, more powerful women are more effective uh, than men, and that's been my position most of my life. I Can guess, I see your finger I, go up, Marianne? Yeah, I guess I want to jump in because I, you sure. know, I spent 
uh, quite a bit of my career working in a male-dominated field. I worked in power plant operations and maintenance for 20 years, and it was a battle. I was one of the first women to do all kinds of things at, at the company that I worked for, and every step along the way, I met resistance. And it had nothing to do with anything but my sex, you know, my my gender, I should say. And and so it's as a person who experienced that in the workforce, it's hard for me to wrap around in my mind the idea of why would you give up that uh, just because of the way you look, you know, why would you give up that power, that authority, that it's taken for granted that you know what you're doing before you open your mouth and nobody asks you to make coffee. Yeah. Well, as I said, to me, it was a more desirable way to live my life. And I knew that my competence would shine through. And it did. Uh, you know, I was uh, promoted into very responsible jobs at Intel. Uh, Intel is a company that believes in most big companies are meritocracies. If you can perform the job, you get it. And I demonstrated it made no difference. So um, I understand a lot of people might might have a reservation about changing their gender. But if it's been with you for 46 years, you, you don't hesitate once you see it's possible. So, Anne, have you experienced any other gender discrimination other than it being asked to serve coffee? Actually, a very senior manager, several levels up in Intel Corporation, did uh, something that I think was discriminatory. <laughs> he, when he heard I was going to make my change, he told me the corporation would give me three months to f- find my my bearings to get settled in my new role. But two weeks after I came back to work as a woman, there was an emergency, and I had to go live remotely for six months and lead a fab project to design a factory for Intel, which is what I did. And I think that was deliberate. It threw me into the most demanding, the most challenging position people in my group did. And uh, I think it was an attempt to see if I, I would fail. And if I failed, they would have a performance-based reason to uh, move me out of the company. But I didn't fail and moved on from there. So. And when you were with us in 2018, it was the first time that you had spoken publicly about your transition. At that time, you said the reason you wanted to speak to us was that you felt women's rights were being threatened. Your thoughts about the current state of women's rights or transge- transgender women's rights? Yes, well, uh, backing up, before 2018, I had transitioned almost 20 years prior to that, mm-hmm. and I only regarded myself as a woman. I did not regard myself as a transgender woman, but back then and very much currently, certain elements of our society, our political spectrum are demonizing transgender women. So I I felt it might be useful for me to share a real life experience of a transgender woman uh, to help people gain a little sympathy, a little understanding of the nature of what it means to be transgender, which is not something that I, I, under, I can't understand why it's being demonized and criminalized in some areas of our country. So this is why I decided to speak out and why I decided really to write the book. 
Was it a difficult book to write? It's it's highly personal. Yes, I was challenged a few times uh, whether to actually include certain details. And actually, I wrote a much more detailed draft and edited out a lot of things that probably were unnecessary. But uh, I started writing it probably two, three years ago, putting away little elements, uh, things I wanted to remember or I had started to write, put up, putting them aside. And then about six months ago, I started making drafts of putting it together, starting with a story from my time in the nuclear Navy. And uh, probably a hundred drafts <laughs> sent to lots of people for uh, input. I owe a lot to many of my reviewers. I learned a lot of things about passive voice and subjunctive tense <laughs> <laughs> and English things I'd learned once and forgotten. And uh, But I felt the details that is in there is necessary to help people understand what happens. Mostly it's about my life, only a very little bit about the transition, the physical parts but the book themselves. It's also a love story. Yes. Talk to us about your love story with your husband, Frank. Well, actually, the, I, a friend of mine who read the book very late in the drafts pointed out to me that it's something I hadn't seen, that there is a progression of understanding of what makes a worthwhile, loving relationship. And I, I, I have had three marriages. The first one was simply based on lust and fear of being alone, and that ended in divorce, of course. And then I, I had a, a genuine falling in love experience and spent a lot of time with my uh, previous spouse. But I discovered a definition of love, which is in the book, that centers around um, caring for your partner's spiritual growth at a level equal to your own. And that was not present in my second relationship, one of the reasons why I did finally decide to transition, and that resulted in divorce. And then I met Frank, and Frank is just a wonderful, open individual, doesn't have a prejudicial bone in his body. Um, he sees me for the whole person that I am and loves that, and I love him. And he, we've been married 18 and a half years now, and it's just... You know, the progression of understanding of what makes a great relationship, and I have ended up, frankly, in a wonderful relationship. Indeed you have. What is the one thing that you would hope readers would take away from reading your story? I would like them to understand that transgender people are, I'll use the word, normal. They contribute to society highly. There are millions of people who would own the level transgender if they were being public about it in our country. And all of them are just living the life they wanted to live, not being public, not being activists, not offending society's norms. And that was my life. And a lot of public media will share stories of, of horror stories and people who are in the middle of transition and look awful and are out there in their face with the public. Those, that's not what transgender people are. If, if you read my story, I think you'll get a sense that it's a genuine condition you're born with. It's not groomed. It is something that uh, 
carries through your life. And if you have the opportunity to understand it and deal with it in a compassionate way, you just produce a useful citizen um, that's very uh, worthwhile and something not something to be demonized. Well, and it's it's getting late, and we want to get out the information as to where our listeners can get more information about your book. Oh, thank you. Well, it's present on Kindle, Amazon Kindle, of course, and on Goodreads. And uh, if you would download it and leave me a review, I would be very grateful. And I include a uh, email address for comments. Anybody want to talk to me or ask a question? I'm very open to that as well. Awesome. And the title? The title is Tall Annie. I am six foot three, and my name is Annie. So, Tall Annie, a life in two genders. A Google search for Tall Annie will bring will bring it to the book. Okay, we are just about out of time. Thank you so much, Anne Graham, for being with us today. Our point theme song is Zigaboogaloo by Nicholas Payton. Our guest intro song was Changes by David Bowie. Thanks to Pearl Stark for Pearl's Puzzle. Thank you to Anne Graham for your time this morning, and thank you, Louise. Thank you, Mary Ann. Thanks for listening to this KPOV podcast. KPOV is community radio for the high desert of Central Oregon. For more information on our program schedule, go to kpov.org. We value your feedback. Drop us a note at podcast at kpov.org.